Okay, welcome to Ask Alex episode 213 on the OneOuter.com podcast. Alex made a comment about last show, the 212 hit him. Well, 213 is going to hit him like a ton of bricks. Alex, you are back, back to back again. This is how we get these shows out, get them in the can and get them ready for people. And this will be enough to take people up to just before Christmas. So pleasure to speak with you again. Uh, Merry Christmas to all who are listening. Alex finished last episode like that. And um, I did just put my Christmas tree up, actually. We put it up at the earliest we've ever put it up this year, the 2nd of December. Um, we normally very traditional 12 days before and 12 days after and uh, get it down. But last year we felt just so Russian. So we went, you know what, we're going to milk it this year and try and get into the Christmas spirit as much as we can, you know. There ain't no Santa Claus coming here to give me the Christmas spirit, so we got to try anything to manufacture it. So, Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Don't have the tree up yet. Uh, last year, I got I got this little one, and I for some reason, all the ornaments I got for it were purple, so my girlfriend called it the Prince Tree, which yeah. I really liked, and I was really sad. It was, like, glittering in purple, so it was really sad to see it go, but... Yeah, I got it. You just reminded me, like, oh crap! I knew I was supposed to do something last weekend that I forgot. And uh, yeah, it, it's really nice though to be in New York for the Christmas season because we actually just got snow yesterday, and it feels like winter. It used to be so weird when I was in San Jose, Costa Rica, just sweating my ass off on Christmas Day, right? It's like ah, I'm just not feeling it. But, yeah, it's great to be here. Great to be talking to you all. Yeah, I saw something the other day. They were in Australia. And, obviously, Christmas Day there, you know, that's their summer. It's hitting the beach barbecues and stuff. It's just, it's strange. It's really strange. Yeah, Uh, it's fun to do, like, a couple of times. Like, I definitely had a lot of fun on Christmas in, uh, in Costa Rica. But, like, you should do it a few times. I feel like the white Christmas is so nice if you can be anywhere there. The one that was really weird in Malta, I was, uh, (laughs) I, like, went broke in Europe when I was, like, 19. Or not broke, but I wasn't doing that well. So I I couldn't get back home for Christmas. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm hanging out here in Malta. And on Christmas Day, I was like, this is depressing. I need a drink. I hope uh, there's a a bar open somewhere, right? I go out there. They're partying like it's New Year's, man. Like every bar is open. The streets are just crowded. Everybody's out, like just having like lots of food, lots of liquor, lots of people just, you know, nobody really being a jackass, everybody being really cool. But it was like the most about face, awesome Christmas ever. I just went from like being totally alone in my room and sad to like partying with hundreds of Maltese because. All the foreigners had left because they all went back home for Christmas in their European countries. So it was just me with hundreds of these Maltese people. And they were like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know, but this is awesome. I think it's like anything. It's, it's the people. You know, I'm around all my brothers and sisters and stuff at, at Christmas. And I think that makes it. You know, it's it's a, being around family and loved ones and stuff. As you get older, I think you do. That is what it's about. And you know, cooking for everyone and having people over and stuff. And for me, as always, it's going to be film related. I mean, as soon as I finish this podcast, I'll be doing enough in my business to take over. And then it will be classics and binging box sets and catching up on this film list, you know, because because that's a full time job, as everybody knows that listens to it. When I speak to, you know, it's like all my friends and people I talk with are, they're all film, you know, writing in their film and TV as well. So, you know, as soon as I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going this, they're like, oh, wait, you got to check. Have you seen this? It came out in like 1992 or what? I'm like, no, I've not. They're like, oh, you've got to watch it. I'm like, right, another one on the list. I'm like, this list is ridiculous. And I'm <laughs> watching so much stuff as well. It's like, God. And then obviously because I'm, you know, human, I do have a tendency to rewatch stuff that I really, really like as well. So you're fighting against that, is you know. So I'll be spending time eating a lot and watching TV. So yeah, it's pretty much like July to me as well. It will be like that, but and um, a little bit colder here. We went to get our Christmas tree. We got a real one from um, 
there's a place up, you know, a forestry place quite local to us, and you go up and pick it, and they're all prepared and stuff. So, yeah, we picked that up, we got it in the house, and we finally got it all, you know, into cupboards, pulling out Christmas decorations. And without sounding like an old man, it does seem like it gets quicker. The years go faster every year. I, I literally, I was saying, this feels like just a few months ago, I was packing these away, you know, like we took the tree down and packed all the decorations away and thought, right, at least that's done, you know, that's all sorted for a year then. And then you're back doing it again. Time does appear to feel go faster at least, but um, anyway, it should be good. I'm looking forward to Christmas this year. It blows my mind how things go faster as well. It's uh, It's something about getting older because I did that the other day where I went, God, it feels like because I had a I had a really stressful work thing happen, and one night, and I think it was really near Christmas, I just decided to walk to Manhattan and back, which from my queen's apartment was not the easiest thing in the world to do. But I was like, I can't sleep anyway, screw it. So I literally walked, not, let's say like eight miles round trip, maybe not even that, right? And... Walked into Manhattan, found an open pizza joint, had two slices of pizza and watched the Hallmark Channel and walked back. And I was listening to Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill on my uh, Audible. And for some reason, that book just got me in such a different place because you're walking around the city at like early morning. And that book is so trippy if you listen to it in the right light. And that feels like two weeks ago, and that was a year ago. That was just one of those memories I now always associate with Christmas. But when I think back on my summer, my summer was amazing, right? Like I got to travel to play poker. I got to see uh, Baltimore's football team, which is like one of the coolest football teams in the nation right now. I got to see them in Baltimore. I got to uh, go to Philadelphia and check that place out. I got to go to D.C. Uh, I got to go to Coney Island with my girl. I got to do a lot of uh, just a lot of things. And it's like when I think back on the summer, it's like, wait a minute, I did a lot. But <laughs> it's yeah, it's something about getting older. Like the time just feels like it's going faster. It's just it's artificial, though. It's not real. Anyway, I guess we should answer some questions, huh? Yeah, it's, it's time's all relative, isn't it? That's what it is. I think we discussed it before. It's when you're five, you know, a year's 20% of your life. Of course. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, when, when you're 36, like me, it's like, it's just like that. It's bang, bang. And, I, you know, my grand passed away in uh, June this year, and I was asking her, she was 90. And I was, I would say to her, I'd say, Grand, does it feel like you've, you know, 90 years? Does that feel a long time for you? Or, and I can't, and she just sort of went, well, we just, you know, just like, she said something like, oh, it just happens, it just passes and goes. And it was like, I wanted to really get inside, you know, like, sort of real sort of metaphysical question <laughs> to my grad, like, what does it feel like to actually, like, 90, do you just go, wow, it just feels like yesterday I was 30. And she says, no, it does feel like a long time. So that was quite reassuring. You know, I think. I think there is. I think there was actually a paper done on it. Once you get past a certain age, it actually does start to come around a little bit to normal, and it feels a little bit like what it is again. You know, a year's a year sort of thing. There is a tipping point. So um, let's hope. Let's hope that we make that. Um, all right. Let's get right into the questions now. The first one we're going to do is going to do a hand history because one, it's a big screed that I want deleted off the notepad. And two, <laughs> um, okay. and two, I just, we, let's get out of the way because it's like reading these sometimes is whatever. Everyone sends them in different ways. But Dean, great to hear from you. Yeah. And uh, let, let's do it. Okay, so Dean says, firstly, it's great to see the one hour podcast back. And I look forward to some rants and abuse from Alex, especially if he reviews my hand below. Well, I've, I've started abusing you already first, uh, Dean, uh, before we've even read it. Uh, this, and he's got, anywho, to quote Alex, I would love, <laughs> I would love your thoughts on my bust-out hand, bust hand if you can spare the time. So the tournament is $2 micro daily masters on party poker, eight-handed tournament. 
there were 646 entries. Situation, there are two six-handed tables remain. I am in seventh place with 36 big blinds, holding ace of clubs, queen of clubs. The payouts, nine to 12 pays $16. Eighth is 20, first is $236. Uh, hold on, I'm, I'm sorry, I was writing things down here. Uh, he has how many big blinds and what are the payouts? 36 big blinds. Okay. And payouts, nine to 12th is 16, eighth is 20, and first is 236. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, the, okay. Blinds, the blinds are 35k, 70k. And the antes are 51k total, so the pot is 156k. And he is under the gun, and he bets 154k. Under the gun plus one calls. Big blind has 41 big blinds, calls. Pot is 548k. The flop comes ace of spades, seven spades, two of clubs. And we have ace-queen of what suit? Ace-queen of clubs. Oh, okay, and the, the flop was what? Ace of spades, seven of spades, two of clubs. Okay, thank you. Hero C-bets, 246k, which is 46% of the pot. Under the gun plus one folds. Big blind raises to 1.287 million. Hero shoves all in, 2.367 million. Big blind calls with ace of diamonds, two of hearts, flop two pair. Now he says, my thoughts, I put big blind player on the following hand range after their flop re-raise. Pocket twos up to sevens, ace two suited to ace ten suited, ace two off to ace jack off, and possibly some flush straws. I discounted other pairs as I believe they would have folded to my c-bet or called at least. And I discounted big pairs and ace-king off as they would have re-raised pre-flop. I obviously leaned towards having a flush draw two-pair or better after their re-raise, but I felt I still had a lot of equity. My afterthoughts are, did I, really, did I totally screw up with either my pre-flop raise size and or my flop play? Were the ICM considerations that I meant I could should have got away from this after the flop re-raise? I would still have had around 25 big blinds. Am I being results-orientated? And are my post-flop ranges that I put them on way off? Sorry if this is a bit messy, and don't worry if you can't reply, but this hand really bothered me for some reason. Also, what would be your best... Okay, that's fine. Um, so, best regards, Dean, a.k.a. in through the window on Twitter and Party Poker. So, if you take it from there, Alex... Hey, Dean, the reason why this hand is bothering you is because, one, let, let me tell you what's going on when a hand's bothering you. That means you don't have a way to check it. So you have this range, and there's not really a way to check it is what you're noticing. And that is disconcerting to most poker players because we worry, secretly all of us worry that we're doing something wrong at the table and that's actually a really good inclination to have or a good feeling to have because it can force you to go find more information now with the data you've given me right now the question is unanswerable because i don't know his hud statistics or any of that so what what i can tell you is what the field does and i'll tell you what the field's range is there right but let me say this about HUD statistics, if you were to have them, which I know are not allowed on Party Poker, I believe he said he was on. So, yeah, if, poker. yeah. So if you were in this situation again and you were on a site that did allow HUD, you got to look at the check raise statistic. Uh, if the check raise statistic is 20% or higher, that is somebody that will gamble up a little bit with you. Uh, if it's 10% or lower, that, that tends to be two pairs uh, – really good combo draws and that's about it the thing about this board is the person uh it obviously can't have a flush draw with overcards because there's an ace on the board so it's less likely they're raising draws what the field typically does the field learns pretty quickly that raising the flop as a bluff doesn't work as much as they'd like because people 
don't like folding pairs. So a lot of people are very afraid of raising the flop as a bluff. It's uh, one of the hardest things for me to teach someone is to bluff, period. It's very difficult to get the average person to bluff because the problem with a bluff is if you win the pot, it's small, nobody sees, nobody cares, uh, no one gets to see how smart you are. If it fails, everybody sees, everybody has an opinion, it's a big pot. So people very quickly learn, hey, uh, I, raising on certain boards doesn't get me a whole lot anyway. I'll, I'll just go ahead and stay with it, the, stay away from it. That doesn't mean subconsciously, I, it doesn't mean consciously they ever think about that. It just means subconsciously that ends up being what they're doing. Now, let's say this guy was a normal player. You'd seen him play quite a bit. Uh, and he played more or less normally, right? So we're thinking he's the normal field. That's about as good as we're going to get on a lot of these sites without HUDs. So whenever you're facing a big bet, as you're facing now, the most important thing to think of is, is he doing this with X? And X is the best hand that you beat. Because we need to remember that out-and-out bluffs are fairly rare. Uh, people have a really hard time bluffing, especially at low to mid-stakes. That tends to be why I teach low to mid stakes because it's easier to teach people basic ranging and really good fundamentals. Once people learn how to bluff, which does happen a lot at high stakes, you really have to be a sharpshooter to pick it up. Uh, but at low and mid stakes, you don't need to worry about it nearly as much as you'd think you'd have to worry about it. So we have to ask ourselves here, since bluffs are pretty unlikely, is he doing this with X? And X is the best hand that we beat. now. Okay, so X would be the best hand that we beat. That would be ace-jack. Do we think this person is raising with ace-jack to get it in with us? That is actually very difficult to find in the data. Uh, it, not to say it doesn't happen. And if it does happen, it does happen uh, at small stakes tournaments, like $5 tournaments, $2 tournaments, and stuff like that. But if a guy plays with some regularity, what he'll find out is if he raises with one pair... Typically, when the pot gets bigger, he just ran into two pair or a really good uh, top pair. If the pot, if the guy has a weaker pair, a lot of times he'll just fold. One of my favorite plays is actually smooth calling from the big blind and then check raising top pair, top kicker on an ace high board because people just think like he, he either has nothing or he has everything. So I'll call down with a lot of hands. In teaching that play is very difficult. A lot of people have a lot of issues with check raising a pair. And I think that's because subconsciously they know when they started playing poker and they were check raising pairs, it didn't work out for them. It got them into a lot of trouble. It got them into a lot of big pots where they were behind. And of course, there's everybody lecturing at the table like you check raised with that. What are you doing, right? So for that case, due to what we just discussed, also, there's another factor that this is an ace-high board. People really do not like raising ace-high boards as a bluff because you run into aces a lot, right? It's hard to double barrel, too. Like, if you raise pre-flop, c-bet an ace-high board, and the guy calls you, even if you have a draw on the turn, most people check back, and that's for a good reason. They just assume the guy has the ace most of the time, and he's not folding. So we have a board where the field typically does not like raising with medium pairs because they build really big pots really fast uh, and versus losing hands. So the versus hands they lose to. So it seems unlikely he's raising ace-jack weaker kickers of, of that nature. Uh, it's very unlikely he's bluffing because that's a very difficult board to bluff. Also, people really struggle with bluffing post-flop. So... That really puts us in, well, he's got a set of twos, a set of sevens, ace seven or ace two. It might hurt your, many people do this, which is, oh my God, it, it's so sick. I'm c-betting here, ace queen, and the guy's raising me and I have to fold. Uh, which to me just sounds a lot like entitlement, which is like, well, is he doing that with ace jack? No. Is he doing that with a bluff? No. Well, I, I guess you got to fold, right? 
Now, if you're playing a higher stakes tournament, you could very well be dealing with a guy that saw a tell or he sees your C betting frequency is absurd in multi-way pots or something like that. But the likelihood of that is very low in this tournament. Look, uh, the best analogy I've ever found for no limit hold'em is this. It's like a heavyweight boxing match. If you ever watch a heavyweight title fight, those guys are so paranoid about their defense because one shot can end the whole match, can change your whole career, right? And in tournaments, when you're playing with like 30, 40 big blinds, you've got to always be looking for that shot because just one ends you. And something, this is something I can't uh, intellectually substantiate or substantiate with data as much as I'd like because it's a little harder to track. But something I noticed growing up in poker, growing up in card rooms, from turning pro at 18, traveling the world playing cards, the guys I always thought were too tight to succeed, the guys I used to look down my nose at because I thought they were too tight. I thought they just didn't have the cojones to do what needed to be done. Those guys never went broke, kept accumulating money, and kept doing great. And all the guys I thought had amazing gut instincts, the ones I thought were supremely talented, a lot of them didn't do that well. And it, it's not because they're not great players. And I think even a lot of the tighter players would say, even a lot of the tighter players would say, oh yeah, that guy's a better poker player than me, no doubt. But what they weren't looking for is the one shot that could take them out. If this guy bluffed you, he bluffed you. It happens. Think about what he would have to be doing on that board for him to be bluffing you. Like, imagine the average guy with pocket eights there seeing a guy fires in a multi-way pod and goes, you know what, this pan, I'm taking it. Right? With the flusher out there. Or the average guy just turning seven, six into a bluff there. Or fives. This is what most people do. Let me tell you what most people do when it comes to no limit hold'em, okay? Because one, ostracism used to mean death in human societies. So nobody wants to get made fun of. Two, Western Europe, the Americas, has in, a little bit in Latin America, I've noticed. They do have this attitude of like, oh, look at you trying to bluff. That's bad, right? Or... Look at you being aggressive for no good reason. That's bad, right? And they really stigmatize and mock those people. And also just because people don't want to feel pain, if they raise as a bluff and everybody sees it, even on the internet with the chat off, it still hurts. The pots they lose are bigger when they get caught than the pots they win. And nobody sees it when they're right and everybody sees it when they're wrong. And if you raise with pairs, you're just going to, at some point, realize that you're constantly folding out weaker pairs and getting two pair to build a pot with you. The vast majority of poker players on earth will learn for survival's sake, and because they don't want to be stigmatized, they'll learn to raise two pair or better, call with their pairs, fold their high cards. And they tend to not fast play their draws nearly as much as they should. That is when I look at the data almost anywhere, that tends to be where most poker players settle because loss aversion is a serious thing. People hate making a pair and then folding it. You'll, you'll notice if you look at the fold to CBET statistics at most databases, it's around 50%, which is most uh, calling ranges flop a pair about 50% of the time on average. And then the, the fold to turn bet in river bets just go down after that. It's, it, it just, it always falls to different degrees, right? So there's, there's some networks I've seen where the average guy is calling eight times out of 10 on the river. And it's like, you can't beat a triple barrel eight times out of 10, right? If you're just calling down with pairs, but it, it just hurts human beings so much to fold to consent to a loss that they'll gamble to get over it. You can 
I always recommend the same books, but I think once you understand this, you'll understand the game. Uh, I'd recommend reading The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. That's the most palatable one. Uh, palatable. And I think that would help you enjoy learning about this quite a bit, the neuroeconomics of it all. But most people raise their two pair better because no one's ever going to blame you for doing that, right? Like pretty much ever. And they call down with their pairs because if you fold and the guy shows you a bluff, it feels awful. And if you call and the guy shows you a made hand, you get to muck your hand and nobody, it's a free roll to look like a genius if you hero call down, right? And you, you can fold your high cards because you feel like nobody wants to fold pre-flop because, oh boy, what, what could come on the flop? But then once the flop comes out there and you miss, it's okay to fold because you only get to see one more card, one more card at this point. So for the vast majority of opponents, you're dealing with guys raising two pair, calling with pairs, folding high cards. So looking at this board, this is one of the more difficult folds you could make if you didn't know anything about the field. It's also extremely difficult because this is micro stakes. This isn't low to mid stakes, which would be my normal wheelhouse. And in micro stakes, you'll just see a guy go insane there with seven, five on occasion. But with the understanding that and this is just my personal opinion. I don't blame you having trouble with this hand. It's very hard to stomach folding there. And if there was any time to go, this is a guy who could turn a pair into a bluff, it would be in these micro stakes tournaments. But my personal belief, just after having played this game for a long time, is that the Average guy doesn't want to make a big mistake deep in a tournament after he's gotten through that many people, so it's really hard to find bluffs, to the guys who were always worried about that one shot that could take them out of the fight just kept going on better and better and better, and the guys that were hyper-aggressive and were supposedly talented and took big risks that weren't always warranted kept taking themselves out of the game. So I think without further knowledge, I think you have such a... I think you have, mo if you're listening to this podcast, if you're the type of person who studies poker, you have a considerable edge on this field. I would say you can fold on that flop, right? I don't blame you for thinking, okay, he's converting a lot of pairs into bluffs and whatnot. Perhaps then a call would be more advisable on the flop to allow him to punch himself out on the turn. I'm just letting you know what I've observed from the field. People really are resistant to raising as a bluff or raising with a pair. And the board, they're very freaked out about raising as a bluff or with a draw is ace-high boards when they don't have overcards. So I think it, it's uh, – I, I think we, it, we probably could have folded on this board. And it's, I think the key thing is you've, you've already hammered at home, Alex, is it's player dependent, isn't it? It's like if this was live, even in a small £20 or $20 tournament buy-in at the local casino where firsts, you know, three dollars $400, against some players, you're snap calling there because you've watched them play or you've played with them many times before and you know, and, you know, a lot of the times you're just crushing them there. But then against some players... You're like, that's, that's an insta-fold. You know, I always try and do that. I always try and think back to the small player pool that I played with, you know, for tendencies. You got this, there's always one guy in a card room that's ridiculously tight, you know, and it's not an exaggeration to say, yeah. you know, all in in these tournaments, especially when it's down to two tables. If you hear raise from him, that's aces or kings. Seriously, it's not ace-king. You know, it's aces or kings. There's always that one guy that's solid like that. And then you've got the other guys that are raising every pot to try and stay until they get their fingers caught and stuff. And it's got to be player dependent, that one. But like you say, I think even in these small micro stakes tournaments, which is what this is, there's still people at that table where $236 for first is money to them because they're playing this tournament or whatever. And yeah, you'll get people in these that are like, oh, that's the phone ringing. I got to go now and jam it in with like, <laughs> like Alex said. Right. But, the funny but, yeah but you've got to like think there are better spots there than that because it doesn't say it's a turbo or anything anyway 
And even if it was a turbo, that's still a huge stack. Twenty-five. If you fold twenty-five big blinds, is huge with uh, twelve players left. You know. So um, yeah, I I would I would fold that there. You know, I would fold in a vacuum. I would fold. It's so easy to be fair to this guy. It's so easy when we're sitting right here, right? Like, and it's. I I think if you're just playing the field, yeah, it's a. We don't know. Maybe this guy had check raised a number of times prior to this, right? yeah. although we didn't hear that. But yeah, it's just like you're saying when you're playing. When I go to Atlantic City, I can't fold that hand a lot of the time because there's a lot of guys there that just. I I, I feel like they. Uh, they're, they uh, they base their manliness on how much they can bluff, and it's uh, they'll do it in absurd spots you wouldn't normally see. So I actually have to go to my bluff catching tactics to pick it up. But then there's a lot of times on the internet. Let's say this guy's from. Actually, you can do a location read here. If this guy's from Uzbekistan, I'm folding because two hundred and thirty dollars there is two weeks' salary. Right. If this guy's from Sweden, that's like five beers, you know, so he might be just having a, a little bit of a laugh. Right. It's not the same stakes. It's the you would probably try some goofy stuff at one cent, two cent if you were playing it. And you would probably be much more careful if you were playing twenty five fifty. And we don't realize this, but sometimes when we're playing tournaments, just due to the value of the U.S. dollar in different countries on this earth. People are playing different stakes, and we have to know what stakes they're playing. So that's a really good point that you brought in there, Barry. And I would say, just to clarify my own point as well, when I say in a vacuum, I mean if you didn't tell me this was a $2 micro daily masters, if you just tell me the stack sizes, the action, I can fold there. Just that maybe, maybe I am that net or whatever, you know, but that that's the way I see tournament poker out of it. You know, like I could fold there and then play with 25 big blinds, especially, you know, live, although this was online, but that's why I'm saying in a vacuum. Now, to, yes, say, it is the two, yes, to say it is the $2 micro daily, I'm calling there because, yeah, these tournaments, he's got, he could have ace 10, he could have ace five, uh, five whatever, you know. And if, he, if he's got two pair on a set, then good, you know. But flush draw, certainly, any other ace and stuff, I, you wouldn't be surprised playing a $2 tournament for the guy to turn over ace three. I mean, it's just, you know. Right, or like a 50-cent one or something like that. It changes by network, too. Like, there's some uh, networks I play that operate in the United States where everybody just thinks they're a gangster. And, like, there's so much bluff raising. And then there's other networks where it's just all weekend warriors where it's they're just terrified of making a mistake. So it's always the hand, right? It depends on the network. It depends on the buy-in. It depends on the location of the person. It, it's a, Again, going back to what I said at the beginning of this hand history, it's impossible to answer given the information we have. Yeah. and But we've made a good go of it, and we have answered. You know, yeah, we did. And again, I always lean toward if I don't know what to do, I fold because – I just picture that heavyweight title fight, man. Like one shot, shot it's out, man, and that's it. So and it's, it's like it's Alex said, even, I think it's fascinating. Still, like poker, we're sitting talking about a hand in a two-dollar online tournament there, and there's still lots you can get out of it and get the brain working about, you know, about these situations. Oh hell yeah! Okay, let's go to the next question, Alex. This one is from Joe. I'm a big fan of the Assassinato have read both his books. I find his three-bet advice to work in $150-plus tournaments much more so than in lower stakes. Does he have any suggestions on adaptations for three-betting in lower stakes U.S. home home games sub-$100 tournaments? Well, typically, almost always when I see people struggling with that, it's they're not squeezing enough. What ends up happening is you you have uh, so so you have a tournament where you're playing like fifty one hundred right one guy opens to three hundred uh, two people call so how much would you squeeze to there Barry uh, someone opens to three and two people call so there's like nine in the pot yeah plus the blinds or whatever. Yeah, it's like 15, something like that. 
Yeah, it, I would even go 2,000-ish there, like more than that, right? You can go 4x plus 2.5x for each hand. It depends on the tournament, obviously. It depends on the stakes or whatever. But the thing you're trying to focus on, because I think if you make it 15 there, back when you and I started, Barry, people actually used to fold to that. Now you're going to go call, 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 right? Yeah. So if you go, okay, when it's raised and called, I'm going to go 4x plus 2.5x each caller or whatever it is, or 4.5x plus 2x for each caller, whichever one you want to do, right? Come up with some rule. I, I honestly change it based on the stack sizes and whatnot. That's why if we're talking tournaments, I can't give a hard and fast rule. I can give hard and fast rules with cash games, but there's a, there with tournaments, Whatever raise size you're thinking of, like 1,500, that used to work. You should probably add more to it. And I think the first thing you should do is go 4x plus 2.5x or 4.5x plus 2x, right? And Or even just 5x plus 2x for each open. And start with that number and then go, okay, do I really need to make it that much to get it heads up with one person, right? So maybe in this hand you do the formula and it comes out to 2,700 and you think, well, I don't necessarily need to make it 2,700, maybe 2,100 would work, right? But that's fine. The problem is, is if you start with 1,500 and you go, okay, I need to make it a little bit more than that, you're gonna end up, you just anchored lower, so you're gonna go to 1,800. And what ends up happening is nobody wants to fold preflop. This is just something about human beings. People do this thing where it's like, hey, poker is, you know, poker is going to die. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it's hilarious. Like, poker's Especially dead. Especially being gamblers, nobody wants to fold three for <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's like, it's like one of those things like, oh, my God, there will be no more overweight people on earth because all the information is out there on how to get six-pack abs. Does that sound logical? And it's the same thing in No Limit Hold'em. The average guy three bets like five, six percent in their hands, which is like aces, kings, queens, jacks, ace, kings suited and like jack nine suited every other Christmas. Right. They uh, they'll th they'll three bet when they're almost forced to because the guy's opening so much and taking their butt in. But that's very they're not three bet bluffing that much. So the smartest thing to do when somebody three bets is to fold. And yet I'll play tournaments with very wealthy people, well off people, very intelligent professionals in their field. And yeah, let's say I'm playing in Philadelphia and it goes 300, 300, 300, and I make it 2,200 on the button. One of two things will happen everybody will fold and I'll pick up a thousand chips, which is fantastic because most likely my hand wasn't worth 10 big blinds unless it was pocket aces, or two. Who do you think is going to flat that huge raise out of position? Do you think it's going to be the dentist who studies poker videos? It, it's going to be like the worst guy, right? It's good. You're going to have this huge pot in position with the worst player at the table. So I almost see what happens is people anchor it when they're squeezing. They don't use any a formula, right? They don't go 4x plus 2x. They don't do any of that, right? Or however you want to do it, right? I, I have people pick their own formulas because some people dislike certain ones. So I typically recommend 4x plus 2x at the minimum. But there's a – so, like, let's do that one. So if there was three, so it would be 4 it would be 8x, right? So, yeah, it would be 2,400. That would be a better anchoring right there, right? And versus when you make it 1,500, you're going to get called. The first guy's never going to fold because the first guy's never going to fold because, like, ah, it's only like a grand more or whatever. And then most likely these guys behind me will call. And then you're going to, and, and then you're going to run into this big multi-way pot. That tends to be the problem I find the most. The other problem people have is they go. Well, somebody opens and I three bet and people cold call behind me quite often. Well, 
your three bet has to get bigger than. It's just try to get those heads up pots. They'll give them to you. So if I'm playing a WPT and somebody makes a 2.5x, I can make it 6.5x and most likely I'll get the pot heads up. Because people understand, hey, you can't be cold calling a three bet with 6.5x that often. And uh, it happens, but not as much. Now, if I'm playing a low stakes event, it goes to like 2.5x. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go to like 11x. If I think the guy's going to call, and a lot of times when you get it heads up, they take it personal, right? <laughs> like when it comes around to them, you didn't squeeze on a bunch of people. You just went on them. And you get a lot of like, all right, buddy, I want to see this board. And then it's like, okay, now we have a 22x pot in position versus the type of guy that doesn't fold to like 4.5x re-raises. I think we're looking pretty good. That tends to be how I navigate uh, lower stakes tournaments. And the other thing we got to talk about is if you're playing a multi-way uh, multi uh, pot, let's see here. So... Hold on a second. Uh, yeah. So, sorry. I, I, I thought I was about to sneeze. Uh, so, I, I didn't want to do that. Uh, so, if you're playing a multi-way pot, sometimes people will feel like, okay, I'm losing all my money when I go into multi-way pots. There's usually a couple of reasons for that. One, they feel like they're going to see bet all the time. No, 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 no. Most likely in a multi-way pot, somebody has hit something. If you're against two players... If you're lucky, both of them have missed like 30, 35% of the time. So if you're going to be betting as a bluff, make sure you have some backdoor draws. Make sure you have some overcards, hopefully. Uh, and bet like one-fifth pot, one-fourth pot, one-third pot, something like that. If there's more players than that, or even if there's just those couple of players, don't be betting big. Uh, don't, don't be betting half pot, two-thirds pot, stuff like that as a bluff. Don't be... Uh, just firing into three people because you were the pre-flop raiser. And also understand if you bet one third pot and it's a semi-coordinated board and the guy calls you really quickly, a lot of times they just cap their range. Now that doesn't mean, that, that means if they called you really quickly, that means they didn't have to think about, well, do I want to slow play my two pair, my set right now uh, versus that small bet or should I raise? Usually that means I have a pair or a draw. So I called. So you know their range is like that. Now, most of the time at low stakes tournaments, people are not going to fold. So you probably shouldn't try to bluff. But on occasion, you'll know a guy in the card room is, uh, you'll know a guy in the card room is really likely to fold if the board gets scary. And you can actually use that as leverage if you get it heads up versus him. And if you do get into multi-way pots and you do hit a hand, you should fire versus the loose passive players and just get as much money as possible in these inflated pots and understand that a lot of them are really afraid to bluff on the river. So you should use some bluff catching techniques uh, just as far as like counting the combos of draws because most people when they bluff on the river, it's a draw that miss because it's really hard for a guy to like check call twice with like king high with the intention to check raise on the river. And if he's check calling with pairs, most low stakes players will not turn a pair into a bluff. So I, I would start with those tactics right there to help you in lower six tournaments when it comes to three betting. That's a great question. Okay. And that's all we have time for regards to questions this week. What we're going to do is we're going to wrap this up with details of master small stakes cash games in one class. Alex is kindly, for the holidays, allowed the exclusive discount for OneOuter.com listeners. It's normally $799, and if you buy it through our link, which we can see that you bought it through us for listening to the show, um, or use OneOuter coupon code at checkout, O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R, it'll drop down to $199 for you, all in. So it's a $600 saving for Christmas. So um, thanks, uh, Alex, Alex Claus, um, the Assassinato Claus for, for all the gifts you've been giving. <laughs> and, yeah. But yeah, you can go out and catch that. So Alex, tell people who maybe missed last show or don't know about it, give us some uh, cliffs and why they should go out and buy Master Small Stakes Cash Games in one class. 
Master small stakes cash games in one class, guys, is the product I've gotten the most feedback on, the most positive feedback on, the most demands for it to be back on sale, especially during the Christmas season when people are playing more cash games. It has 26 of the first reviews on Gumroad. Uh, 92% of them are five stars. Uh, 8% are four stars. It's 13 plus hours of lessons uh, because 90% of the world's cash game players play one, two, no limit hold'em live, sometimes two, five. When they play online, they play 50 NL or 100 NL. These are great games to play with tons of bad players, but there's a problem in that most poker training is not designed for these games. How many times have you ever watched a training video and thought that situation never comes up in my games? It never gets folded to me on the button and I can min raise and play a pot with the big blind. Like, has that ever happened to you, Barry, in any of your local games? Very rarely. Yeah, exactly. They're all multi-way pots. Most poker training is not designed for these games. Or, or maybe you've thought that bluff would never work on the donkeys I play with. Well, guess what? You're absolutely right. That training was designed for better players that you're not playing with. You need a training product that is right for you. And finally, now one exists. In Master Small Stakes Cash Games in one class, you won't learn the subtle GTO principles you'll need to beat the nosebleed stakes in Macau. You'll learn the strategies you need to help you thrash the bums in your local games. Do you hate multi-way pots? Do you not know what to do when everybody limps, calls, and tries to hit a BS pair to beat your aces or kings? Learn how to beat these players today and learn so much more. In Master Small Stakes Cash Games in one class, you will watch full episodes on money-making short, short stacking strategies, how to catch bluffers in the act, how to deal with frequent three-betters, how to defend your blinds, how to play heads-up pots, how to play multi-way pots, how to deal with limpers, and how to get money out of the tightest players at the table. And you'll get a free copy of the Myth of Poker Talent so you can get intense statistical instruction for online games. Learn how to apply these strategies in deliberate fashion on the digital felt and destroy those games too. So what are you waiting for? Act now and start dominating the games you actually play today. No, all videos are available for immediate streaming. Downloads are not available at this time. Buy now and get a free copy of the Myth of Poker Talent sent as a free gift from DNB Publishing. Very succinct. Um, <laughs> Thank I, you. <laughs> I would say to people, get it. 13 plus hours a lesson, get studying it, cramming it, and then hit those games, those live cash games in January, February. When people start popping up, there's usually like New Year tournaments on and stuff. The casino's a little bit busier. The cash games are a little bit more busier and juicier. And then, you know, you've got some drunk players and stuff. And then go and try out these things there and, you know, let us know how you get on as well. And um, yeah, go out and grab that. All the details on how you can order it will be in the blog post for this episode and any of Alex's offers will be also, if you go to oneouter.com, top right of the page, you'll see a little link that says Alex's store, little tab, click in there and all the details will be in there, links and stuff to take you through the Gumroad site and order it all securely and safely. If you have any questions for Alex on a future show, please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet me. Uh, at oneouter.com on Twitter. That's at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M and we'll get those questions read out to you. Alex, this episode will be going out on the 19th of December, so that's us wrapped up for 2019. We are planning on coming back in January with uh, an episode or two for uh, January to take you over the New Year blues. And um, I'm sure that... Actually, I was going to preview that because we're keeping this question for the next show. So we will be back in January, and the first question we'll be discussing is someone writing in saying, what is the quickest way and most likely way to have a 100K poker bankroll? You can be as careless as you want. Say you had to do it in a year. What would your strategy be? Let's say starting with 1K, and you can reload only once. You can play anything you want. Look forward to both your answers. So that will be discussed on the next show. So... I don't know what's a bigger teaser to get people back listening. Not like they need it. We've got a loyal fan base and support here, but we will be discussing how to make a 100K back poker bankroll starting from 1K or give yourself the best chance of doing that. So Alex has got, you know, maybe three or four weeks to think on that. And um, 
I would say start by buying master small stakes cash games in one class, Alex, would you? Actually, a big part of my poker investing strategy was like 80, 90% low risk investments, I guess, for lack of a better word and not repetitive word. I focused most of my time in sit and goes and cash games when I was building my bankroll and doing exactly what you were hoping to do and just putting as much as I could in the hours. And these are quite literally my lessons for people who say, hey, I want to learn cash games. Like this is my lesson plan. And if you open it, let's say you go play at your local card room and you notice, wow, that was a really passive game. The next time you go there, you can just open this pack and watch specifically the passive game section and get this like one hour uh, test slash lesson from a pro to get you prepped before you go play. Or maybe you see that, wow, it was a really aggressive game. There's a section on that. Or wow, I was in multi-way pots. I didn't know what to do. There's a section on that. Or I felt like people were bluffing me. How can I pick that off? There's a section on that. Whatever you notice, you can prep for the next time you play. So that's how you get that really good deliberate practice with a coach that's really hard to come by on your own. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty affordable these days. It's Poker training has come down in price a lot since when I started. Yeah. I mean, $199. I think I paid $150 or $170 for the first lesson with Alex, something like that. And I made so much money from that. So 13 plus hours in one package for $200 is a bargain. Um, Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Go out, have a great Christmas. Keep your questions coming in and we'll see you in the new year. Alex, is there anything you want to end on? Anything you want to say how people can get in touch with you? Um, I'll let you have the closing. Everybody have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Quasi Kwanzaa, and a Tip Top Tet, and Happy New Year. I love you all. Go to PokerEdrush.com and sign up for the newsletter if you want free podcast videos and articles every single day to help your game. Okay, that was good. He's very succinct and on farm tonight. It's good. Or he must have somewhere else to go just now. It's one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone for listening Alex thanks for spending the time again and we'll catch up in the new year Merry Christmas everyone cheers cheers